Welcome to You, Me and the Nostalgic Football Podcast from Football Whispers, which each week takes a step back to the 90s to remember the career of an iconic player from that decade. My name is Tom Bedell and this week I'm joined by Owen Brown, freelance journalist and co-host of the Pure Fit Bar Podcast. Owen, how are you? It was my birthday yesterday. I had a pretty great day considering it was a lockdown celebration with some uh, nice presents and decent weather and stuff. Uh, so I- I'm pretty happy. Hope you're doing well too. Um, how are you? Very well, thank you, mate. Very well. Well, so far in these shows, we've focused a lot on attacking players, probably inevitable that. But today we're talking about one of the classiest, coolest, calmest defenders of the 90s, Lillian Turam. Owen, when I say his name, Turam's name, what's your immediate kind of reaction? What's your? How do you sum him up? Um, as a kind of truly iconic footballer, in my view, one of the kind of best ever. Um, somebody that's been kind of rightfully rewarded with a incredible career full of honours on a kind of individual club and national team basis. Um, also as an interesting human being, um, you know, mm. in terms of his time after um, football. Also as a father of children who themselves have become professional footballers, which is an interesting subject to me. And, and kind of in terms of his impact on me. So he was, you know, somebody that I loved watching um, during the 90s. He kind of fills me with nice kind of nostalgic thoughts about Saturday mornings, watching Gazetta Football Italia before, you know, going off to play football myself. Um, and that's kind of part of the reason why I fell in love with the game and with certain types of players. A lot of that is down to, to ramp. Well, that sounds pretty idyllic, getting up and watching Gazetta on a weekend. So that's your, that's your upbringing and, and, you, and you as a, as a youngster. But on Turam, born in Guadeloupe, his family emigrated to mainland France in 1981 when he was nine years old. And he started out playing on the beaches and what have you and started out as an attacking midfielder before gradually moving backwards to become the defender that we knew and loved. Do you think we saw some of that kind of attacking instincts and the comfort on the ball and what have you in the way he eventually established himself as one of the world's best defenders? Sure, I guess. So, I mean, you mentioned how kind of cool and composed he is and, and comfortable on the ball. I think with a lot of players, there's kind of stories about them having played in different positions when they're younger. And quite often, you know, physical attributes change or other people develop a wee bit later and it kind of catches up with them. It often leads to maybe people shifting backwards on the pitch. You know, if you're particularly tall as a kid, maybe you started as a centre forward and then end up as a centre back. And maybe if you started at winger, but you don't have explosive acceleration, you drop to full back. And I think that Turam's kind of composure and comfort on the ball with his, you know, his feet, it gives you an indication that he could or did play in other positions. And also his body type, you know, he's maybe a bit taller than you'd expect for a fullback, but maybe a bit slimmer and not with the kind of um, big kind of aggressive wing frame you might expect in a centre-back. He, he looks to me a little bit more like a midfielder. Um, so, yeah, a very well-rounded individual. And I'm sure playing higher up the pitch earlier helped with his his ball control and confidence with the ball at his feet, absolutely. Broke into the Monaco side after joining, a couple of years after joining and became a, a mainstay of that team, if it gradually played under Arsene Wenger, obviously until until 94. Not a bad Monaco side by anyone, by any stretch. Uh, Manuel Petit, George Weir, Yuri Djorkaev, among others. What can you tell us about that team and a, a very young Turam in his formative years in Liga? Yeah, what what an incredible uh, side. Um, my knowledge of that team um, at the time is probably a little bit limited. You know, it's not the same as now where you can and, and possibly do if you're, you're me, watch any and all football that's available. You know, there were far fewer televised foreign matches shown in Scotland than, than now, maybe limited just to Italian football on Channel 4, but those are some incredible players, right? So there was also Enzo Schifo, kind of mercurial uh, Belgian midfielder, Sonny Anderson, Brazilian, brilliant striker. I think he scored 21 goals in terms last season at Monaco. And 
Thierry Henry coming through, Trezeguet arriving. Um, so yeah, what a team! And I think that was quite an interesting time in Ligue 1 before you know PSG uh, kind of dominated. Um, I think in, in Turam's kind of last two seasons in France, Nantes and Auxerre won the league. Kind of shows you it was a little bit of a different time. Um, and I think for Turam, um, he, he was clearly making a really good impression. So he had, like you said, Wenger as a manager. He also had for part of that time, Jean Tigana, legendary mm-hmm. kind of French midfielder. And I think that Turam, um, you know, through that time, his versatile, versatility would already have been a good fit. Um, they, they often played with a three at the back under Tigana. And I think for me, one of the things that kind of sticks out about Turam, um, and I guess the, the number of international caps he got for France is a kind of quick indicator of this, was his availability and dependability. Um, so, you know, from even the age of 20, when he started at Monaco, he was already um, playing so many games a season. You know, he kind of played 40-plus games a season up until his mid-30s. And I think the, the positional versatility helps with that. But I also think that it shows from a young age when he was breaking through at Monaco, he was already showing managers and fans that he could be relied upon. Um, I think that's a, a really kind of important impression to give and that, that was a kind of key thing that sticks out for me at the, the start of his career there. And what sort of player was he in his in his earlier days? Obviously, you wouldn't have necessarily been watching at the time, as you say, but from what you've you know researched and aware of now, what sort of impression was he making at that point? His kind of key attributes and skills were maybe quite evident from an early age, you know, as you've touched on. He was, you know, as a very young child, um, an attacking midfielder. So he built that kind of comfort on the ball very early. He had that positional versatility from an early, you know, kind of age as a senior professional footballer. And that was being used by Monaco, you know, with kind of adaptive systems and stuff. So he was already showing his kind of comfort with uh, the ball at his feet. He was starting to show um, the kind of, you know, um, defensive attributes that he had in terms of his um, positional awareness um, and is um, I, I think one of the things that sticks out for me about Turam from an early age in a defensive way is that he already had that ability to kind of know when it might be better to stay on his feet. You know, he was, mm-hmm. and that's maybe partly down to the blend of fullback and centre back that uh, you know he stayed on his feet wherever he could and wasn't the sort of person that would dive in. But if in a kind of you know situation where he had to. He's very good at anticipating when to kind of dive in and get that block. So all, all those things to me, um, having looked back at kind of footage, are already there from a young age, breaking through at Monaco. And he already looks like he's the sort of person that you can potentially see in a kind of leader on the pitch. Something you mentioned there interested me, that, and you're right to say it, the, uh, you know, knowing when to dive in, with the precise nature of tackling and what have you. And when we hear coaches and I'm thinking explicitly here of Pep Guardiola talking about you know we don't train tackles it's about intercepting and what have you do you think and this is obviously a point made notwithstanding the fact that he retired not that long ago in the grand scheme of things how would he have got on in this day and age as a defender do you think do you think he had the skill set to have to thrive in the the 2010s and what have you as as, as much as he did in his own era it's a good question uh, something that's really interesting to me to think about generally about you know who could uh, transfer between eras I, i'm maybe of the opinion um as opposed to maybe some other people that things haven't necessarily changed that much. You know, obviously there's more, you know, intense pressing and system things are maybe a bit more structured just now, but the, the fundamentals are the same. And I think you can see from Turam's physical and technical attributes that he, he would be a success just now. I've got no doubt about that. Um, I think he has everything it takes to 
um, you know, to have been a, a remarkable player even in, in the modern era. You talked earlier about obviously the fact that he's France's record cap holder and you know such a span his career for for France over fourteen years, give or take. Um, wins his first French cap in '94, and although he's not a regular at, at that point, gradually eases his way into the the national setup. Sort of '96, I think, was the year that he first really laid down his marker. What sort of um, what sort of competition was there for places in the French squad at that time, Owen? Well, this was a really good French team, wasn't it? I mean, I think they'd had um, the the upset of not qualifying for the 1994 World Cup. So then there was a lot of opportunities maybe for new players to come through. They were obviously having people on the fringes like Henri and Trezeguet. Um, but a back line that, for instance, was you know at the 1998 World Cup was incredible and I guess they had a good period of time around 96 when as you said um, you know uh, Turam came in fully to kind of blood these players with, with the idea of turning things around from not qualifying from the previous World Cup and of course 98 was going to be in France they would clearly have wanted to make a mark they didn't have qualification for it given they had a host place so yeah lo- loads of competition for players I think they would have looked at a widespread of you know players to try and make us good a team as possible but yeah a phenomenal um, backline they had which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to a bit um, so it's um, impressive that he was able to you know be a, a part of that team from a relatively young age particularly for you know a defender where you'd want maybe more experience than up front. Is it accurate to say that Turam was maybe a little bit of a pioneer for defenders th- that we see now and that you know they're not just he wasn't someone who just sort of got rid of the ball and considered his job done he could play as well he had all the kind of tools in the sense of the the speed and the aggression but equally the the kind of the the silkier side of things as well is that is that too much for a stretch to say or is there something in that do you think I don't think it's too much for a stretch to say that that was something that was incredibly um, notable for him it's a major part of his skill set um, I think it's something that differentiates him from a lot of other defenders at the time I, I guess I'm always personally a little bit hesitant about suggesting that a certain player was a pioneer or something um, the mid-90s might seem a little uh, while ago for you and I but there were decades of football before that. And while there's, you know, maybe, like I said, a tendency to suggest that the modern games are hugely forward from previous football, it's basically comprised of the same elements, in my view. And, and there were ball-playing defenders before him. You know, Paolo Maldini was a, a full-back from centre-back on the other side who had won European Cups shortly before Turan even played senior football. There's Manuel Amaros, who played for Monaco in France as well, who is a really, really accomplished ball-playing defender. However, I think you're right in saying that Turam's an example, a great example of somebody that managed to strike a balance, you know, very good with the ball at his feet in terms of bringing out the defence in a controlled way, but also going deep into opposition territory as a fullback, coupled with being a very good defender. So you could say that that kind of, you know, the, the balance of all of those elements means that, you know, he's, he's pretty different and, and, yeah, in some ways a pioneer, absolutely. And finally, just wrapping up his time at Monaco, he won the Coupe de France in 91, although he wasn't part of the squad on the day. And uh, a side that won, uh, reached the UEFA Cup final, I think I'm right in saying, in uh, 92, possibly. So just before his time. But how does that, how does his, uh, how do you kind of sum up his time in Monaco and his kind of burgeoning reputation, I suppose, at that point? Yeah, I think it was a really good place for Turam to be. I think he probably benefited from managers like you said, Wenger and Tigana, that were, you know, uh, huge influences on players. 
you know, Tagana had obviously been and done it at a high level himself. Wenger, we know now, has you know obviously been brilliant for many many people's career, particularly you know young French players. Um, so I think Turan profited from that, and and he was playing around lots of other young French players who were coming through and went on to have long careers. So that must have been very inspiring for him as well. Um, and I think you know being able to challenge for honours, but maybe not quite get them would also be inspirational for your career for somebody like that who, you know, I think you can probably see from a young age is going to be able to go and have a good long career. He might, you know, take that kind of almost uh, thing of almost getting some uh, honours with Monaco as uh, that spur to move on to the next level. So, yeah, great, great for his development. Well, we'll just leave it there on his time at Monaco and we'll be back after a very short break. Welcome back to you, Mian. Today we're joined by Owen Brown, freelance football journalist and co-host of the Pure Football Podcast. And we're talking about Lillian Turan, one of the really great defenders of the 90s and a real kind of well-rounded defender as much as anything. At the point where we left it, he'd been a kind of one of the, the bigger names by now of this Monaco side in the, in the early to mid-90s. And in 96, he joined Palmer, a move which I think it's fair to say went quite a way towards making him a more household name across Europe. Is is that fair, Owen? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair, yeah. Um, so Parma were, you know, in Serie A and, and Serie A was maybe um, the league, I guess you would say, at that point. Um, so in, in terms of kind of domestic uh, position, Milan had won the league, Juventus had come second, Parma were in sixth the previous season before Turan arrived. There were seven places available um, for European competition within an 18-team league. Um, so this was a, a division that then you know, obviously went kind of set you know some standards in terms of Europe. Um, and from the 1991-92 season up to and including 97-98, there was an Italian club in the final of the European Cup or Champions League each year. Um, the same goes for the UEFA Cup stroke Europa League, except for 95-96. So I think that goes some way to show, you know, kind of how much that league kind of dominated things. This is maybe a little bit prior to, you know, large injections of money into the English leagues and into Spain. So Serie A was the league with the money, the best scouting networks and therefore the best players, you know, as, as examples of who could have arrived around the same as time as Turam. Well, the, the summer before him, Inter brought in Paul Ince, Javier Zanetti, Roberto Carlos, Milan brought in George Weah, Sampdoria brought in Clarence Seedorf, Parma brought in uh, Hristo Stoichkov. And then the summer that Turam arrived, Inter brought in Jorkaev, Canu, Diego Simeone, Parma brought in Hernan Crespo, Lazio brought in Pavel Nevied, Juve brought in Zidane and Vieri and Boxic. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was the place to be, really. Um, and the, the funny thing about Parma is that, you know, they're a relatively small town. Um, an average match attendance at that time of about 25,000 people in a stadium that they didn't own. Um, limited means of generating revenue, bankrolled by Parmalat, that was essentially the local dairy, who then expanded into financial markets, which obviously went badly wrong um, in the future. But by the turn of the century, the club was spending, you know, 50 million plus on transfers in a season. Um, so, you know, it, it was an extraordinarily exciting league to be watching. Parma were just packed with phenomenal players. They happened to be the team I supported as well, mainly because of those um, phenomenal players. So I, th- I think it was a great place for, for Turan to land, Ferex. Absolutely. We've answered about three que- my next three questions in one there, which is a bit of a scene setter on Serie A at the time and Parma. And even, I was going to say, how did Parma become the, the kind of team they were? Because as you say, quite a small 
club really in the grand scheme of things. Some of those names he was playing alongside, uh, Buffon behind him, Fabio Cannavaro, Juan, Juan Sebastian Veron, Enrico Chiesa, Gianfranco Zola was there for a very short time and probably the undoubted star, the, the cherry on top, I guess, for a, a good few seasons with the goals he was knocking in was Hernan Crespo. A hell of a team. And where did Turam sit in the kind of, within that, in a hierarchical, hierarchical kind of sense, you know, what... He wasn't necessarily the star, but he was he was complementing what they already had, right? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think he was incredibly significant. So you're right to say he's not necessarily the star. But again, I think his dependability is a big factor in his significance. So Parma are playing a lot of matches at a time. You know, there's the Coppa Italia, which they're going deep into. There's Europe, which they're having runs into. And part, uh, part of the you know kind of significance of Turam is that he's always there. He's always important. And I think that can be particularly important in a squad that's maybe experiencing a lot of turnover, a lot of new buys, to have that kind of leadership and you know security that somebody that you know uh, is always there provides. And again, you know, he provides that positional versatility, um, not just necessarily in the kind of literal um, way of being able to play centre back or right back, but also maybe in terms of how he can interpret those roles. So you know he could play quite a reserve right back, you know, almost as a third centre back if maybe Palmer were playing with all, all of these multiple attacking midfielders <laughs> you just mentioned, um, or you know maybe he could provide the thrust and width from right back, you know, if they were playing a different uh, setup, or, or you know he could play as a, a straight up kind of penalty box centre back or somebody who brings out a central defence, and I think. The other thing to maybe keep in mind about a team of that nature, when there's a lot of maybe superstars, is that they maybe rely a lot on individual quality at both ends of the pitch. Um, maybe not, you know, so focused on system. So that kind of means that the roles of the individuals um, becomes magnified. I think, uh, and you know, somebody like Turam can become even more significant because, yeah, it was a good defence. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Buffon and Caravaggio, but maybe the the, the greatness of that defence is even more about the individual rather than a kind of, you know, a collective defensive system. So, yeah, very, very significant guy, I think, for them. In 96-97, Palmer earned their highest ever Serie A finish. They were second and only two points behind the eventual champions, Juventus. How did they kind of grow in this period? There were more signings arriving, but what kind of, what, kept them in that, that because the, although they never actually won the title and they didn't, I don't think they came that close again they were competing for honours and what have you so what was the kind of story of Palmer in, in that period as, as as time progressed? Well I mean I think part of the benefit that they had was some of these players growing together so people like Cavaro and Buffon and Turam building that kind of relationship um, also in terms of the management so Carlo Ancelotti was the manager in one of his very first jobs and he's gone on to become, you know, as we're all aware, one of the most kind of respected long-term managers in the game with a real talent for kind of man management. He's maybe known as, you know, somebody that's maybe on the more kind of motivational side rather than a kind of, you know, tactics guru. Um, and I think that's a good way to think about Parma as well from that era when they had a lot of those kind of individual superstar talents that he was the guy, you know, who's then been, you know, gone on, been trusted with, you know, looking after Galacticos at Real Madrid and PSG and Bayern Munich and so on. You know, he's, he's got experience of doing that from way back then. And I think in terms of individuals like Turam and and how Parma progressed at that time, he was continually growing. So, you know, that kind of ability to play in different roles uh, developed more of a positional sense. He's probably gaining a lot more kind of confidence in terms of his partnerships at the back. 
growing into a leader. Um, so all of this kind of ties together, I think, to um, put Parma on a, a kind of run of, of a number of seasons then when they became, um, you know, a really impressive force in Italian football and in Europe. Off, off the back of that, of course, they qualify for Champions League, the Champions League at a time when only two Italian representatives. How did that help Turam, do you think, in terms of developing himself as a player and testing himself against the very best attackers that Europe had to offer? Not, by the way, to d- disregard the, the attacking talent on, on display in Serie A at the time and also kind of bring him bring his name and the names of the players at Parma to a, a wider audience. You know, as we said earlier, maybe didn't watch Ligue 1 in Scotland every week growing up, but the Champions League was on in the UK. So a, a glimpse into European football that we might not otherwise have had. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really important thing to think about when you think about players from that era, that the kind of profile and reputation is you know reflected in how people would have got to see them. Um, Durham's still pretty young at this point, you know, 24, 25, and I think this would have done um, no harm at all being able to play at that level. In terms of people maybe here, people in Scotland particularly, um, being able to see him, well, in the group stage um, of the Champions League when they were in that season, uh, Borussia Dortmund, who were the champions the previous season, were in Parma's group, and of course Paul Lambert played for them the previous season when they won it. So that, that could have you know, stuck out to people here. Um, Parma, in fact, actually beat them at home, which was you know, incredibly impressive, of course, to beat the, the previous champions. Um, they went out in the group stage, though. So that time, only the six group winners and the two best runners-up went through. But I think it's a huge um, benefit, a boost to his development and you know reputation. They were only about three points away from winning the Serie A division in 96-97, um, conceding just 26 goals in, in that season. And then you know they go on to the Champions League and, and do some pretty admirable things there. So yeah, that, that's that's got to have been a boost for him reputationally, absolutely. 97-98 then, Palmer, probably unsurprisingly, unable to follow up that runners-up spot, do reach the semi-finals of the Coppa Italia and go out of the Champions League in the group stage. The season obviously ends with Turam earning his place in France's 1998 World Cup squad and he's the first choice back four in a defence that's got uh, Laurent Blanc, Marcel Desailly, Bixente Lizarazou and those guys protecting Fabian Barthez. Names that roll off the tongue and it's the same you know, as you go forward. We've talked about the legacy of that team, particularly through a kind of the prism of Zinedine Zidane, but how much of a part did Turam play and obviously we can't overlook the fact that he chose the semi-final against Croatia to score his only two international goals. Um, how big was his part in that eventual triumph? And, and, and that triumph as well for for France as well is very significant, of course, culturally. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Um, I think he's a really important factor for them in this tournament win. Um, as you said, it's an incredible backline. Um, you know, for instance, Desai, somebody else from that era who had... Uh, quite a kind of similar positional versatility and blend of kind of technical and physical attributes and leadership. Um, in the French setup, up, um, I think you could say that the fullbacks had a lot of work to do um, because, you know, they kind of provided width. There, there weren't necessarily natural wingers ahead. You know, people like Jorge Evans and Dan would want to be in central areas often. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lot of work um, for the fullbacks to get up and down the pitch, but also have that you know, defensive responsibility too. Um, because you're, you're effectively maybe playing with four attackers who are not going to track back a lot. Um, and France topped their group, um, only let in one goal. In fact, only let in one other goal in the whole tournament, which was you know the one against Croatia in the, the semi-final. Um, and Turan played in all the knockout games. Um, I think in some ways this is 
quite a, a comparable performance by France to the 2018 World Cup win. So it's again a little bit at times, you know, there's a wealth of talent in the teams, but it's a little bit of a grindy performance. Both tournaments are in France at home. Um, you've got Stéphane Guivard up front, who's maybe not, um, a, a, you know, he's, he's like a less good-looking Giroud in some ways. Um, they've got the 3-0 win in the final over Brazil, maybe papering over um, the sudden death win over Paraguay and penalties win over Italy. Uh, Benjamin Pavard's long-distance half-volley uh, in the 2018 World Cup from fullback could maybe be compared to Taram's goal from outside the box against Croatia. Um, so, you know, I, I think that having somebody like Taram to get them through all that when maybe, you know, the, the team was full of stars, but functionally in terms of attacking performances, maybe not quite there at times. So somebody that can provide kind of resolute defensive actions, but also give width, um, was he was a really important beneficial part of a, a system that I think kind of was designed to win the tournament and, and did do that. So yeah, he was a, a key factor for me, absolutely. And the kind of cultural significance of France winning, you know, Saram as well, obviously kind of migrant from a French colony. How uh, how significant was that? And as you mentioned right at the very beginning, and we are going to go on to talk about this later in the kind of his legacy someone who very much you know stands up for what he believes in and takes you know i think a great deal of pride in his his roots and his upbringing and and so on so can you tie all that together for you me i've thrown a lot of words at you i mean it's a kind of incredible childhood for turam and uh, you know you mentioned born in guadeloupe but his mother has to leave the family when he's very young you know at age of 5 or something like that mm. and turam you know is uh only sent for a number of years later, you know, um, to join her in Paris. Um, so I think this would have meant, you know, a, a huge deal for him and not just for him, but, you know, for people who are similar to him, other people who have immigrated to Paris and, you know, similar circumstances to France, you know, wider um, way. And, and you can see that that echoes down for, you know, the next 20 years or, or more with, you know, similar messages coming out of the, the 2018 World Cup win. So I think that shows you how significant this is and, and how much of a figurehead in some ways Taram is um, for people, for France as a nation, um, in terms of kind of providing that sort of unity and that kind of idea of, um, you know, uh, achievement and, and stuff for people who are maybe um, a little bit marginalised by the country or, or you know, by, by life in some ways. So, yeah, absolutely significant part of it. The following season then, 98-99, things get better for Turam and for Palmer, coached by Alberto Malassani now, um, and very much still powered by the goals of Hernan Crespo. They finish fourth in Serie A, but win the UEFA Cup and the Coppa Italia. Just talk to us about that season. Obviously, you say, watched a lot of Palmer growing up and... At that time, what do you remember of that season? What are the kind of standout moments? And what, what was Turam's involvement in it all? Uh, well, I think Turam was really key. Um, so he's an ever-present in the league that season, 1998-99, and also an ever-present in UEFA Cup uh, triumph. Um, he's age 27 right now. Uh, so in the latter half of that season, he, he turns 27, plays 53 club games across all competitions, which is the most of any player for Parma that season. He's a really key player. Um, obviously, you know, they win the UEFA Cup and it's a phenomenal win, I think, for them to do that. Um, you know, they, they really um, excelled in some games. So they put six goals past Bordeaux at home in the quarterfinals. They, you know, 
beat a really good Atletico Madrid team in the semis. Uh, I think this is just uh, uh, this really encapsulates you know Parma and Turam at this time. This is what they wanted to achieve to put their stamp on things in Europe, and it's also clearly what he wanted to try and achieve. Um, moving from Monaco to Serie A to have that kind of success and to be such a fundamental key part of a team. Um, so, yeah, um, a really, really important season and very enjoyable to watch. And the good times very much keep rolling because Euro 2000 rolls around and France do something that hadn't ever been achieved at that point. How is it fair to say at this point you've got the World Cup in his back pocket, Euro 2000, UEFA Cup, Coppa Italia, part of fantastic Parmaside, iconic Parmaside. Is Turam at this point very much at his peak? Can we you throw the word, the phrase world-class at him, do you think, at this stage? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, he's definitely a world-class player at this point, I think, and also is recognised as such. I think, like you say, the kind of international tournaments really help with that. You know, that gives you that kind of recognition. Um, he's in the 1998 World Cup uh, FIFA team of the tournament, got the the bronze ball, you know, some sort of award behind Davor Sucker and Ronaldo for, you know, best players in the, 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 the tournament. And as you point to, you know, France go on and, and uh, prove a remarkable feat with the 2000 Euros win as well. And Turam's such a key player for his club as well. You know, I think being kind of ever-present really helps with that. So he's really hitting his heights. Um, you know, I think that his... Uh, technical and you know physical um, attributes are all there, but this probably will provide a, a real boost to his kind of confidence and leadership. Um, so yeah, I'd say he's absolutely a world class player at that point. Probably at his peak, I think his two thousand and two two thousand and three season at Juventus is a really good one as well. Um, they get to the Champions League final then, and he's again really reliable. He's got more league appearances for them that season than anybody except Nedved or Camerunese. So, yeah, um, but he, he, he's absolutely at peak about this point. Yep. Well, I think that's a good point to leave it at the turn of the uh, century there. We'll be taking a very short break and then we'll be back with Owen to talk about the next stage of Lillian Turam's fantastic career. Well, welcome back to Yumi and today we're joined by Owen Brown, freelance football journalist and co-host of the Pure Fitball podcast. We're talking about the fantastic... Lillian Saram. After more than 200 appearances for Palmer, he follows Gianluigi Buffon to Juventus in a deal that's worth more than 40 million euros in today's money. Um, not insignificant price for any player at that time, but a, de- a defender certainly quite remarkable. How big was that at the time? And and we talked earlier about you know the the kind of wealth and the, the status of Serie A. Is that still the case that this is you know one of Europe's strongest, if not strongest, leagues at that point? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, there was certainly more money coming into the game in England and Spain at that point, but Italian clubs are still a big force in Europe at the kind of turn of the century, um, in maybe a way that they weren't you know once it got to you know twenty ten and beyond. And I think this move for Tram was really significant. So it's a world record fee for a defender at that point. Juventus are really trying to put down a marker, um, I think, not just in Italian football, but they're desperately trying to win the Champions League. Um, They spent about £150 million all told that summer. Of course, it was partially funded by them selling Zidane to Real Madrid. Um, But Turam had been part of, um, you know, France winning Euro 2000, as we just spoke about. And he's brought in alongside Buffon and Nedved and Marcelo Salas. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a really significant move. The Juventus are, are really trying to put together a team that will, you know, go beyond Serie A effectively. Yeah. And some, obviously, we say that Buffon joins and some of the other names, but 
some of the defenders that he played alongside immediately in, in the coming years, the likes of Fabio Cannavaro, Chira Ferreira, Paolo Montero, Alessandro Burundelli, Gianluca Zambrotti, Igor Tudor, Gianluca Passotto, Mark Luliano, and there are plenty of others, Jonathan Zabina, people that I've forgotten uh, and mean no disrespect to. It was a hell of a defence. How does he fit into that? initially and in the coming years? Well, I think you're right to point out that it's it's an incredible defence. I think it's quite interesting that a lot of those players um, are a a real blend of attributes as well, similarly to Turam, but maybe the kind of main thing that sticks out about all of them, the kind of scene running through, is that these guys are leaders on the pitch. Um, You know, Buffon, Cannavaro, Ferrara, Montero. Um, So... You know, this must have been an adjustment for Turam. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about that he's just coming off so much success for France and, you know, being a key part for Parma. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting to think about, you know, how he fits into that and how he adapts. But it's incredible that already, um, you know, he, he becomes a really important player for Juventus. Uh, he, you know, his availability and consistency in terms of being available for the manager sticks out and he's always at a high level. Um, I think it probably helps that he probably has that relationship with Buffon as well too. Um, so he's a kind of natural fit to keep that going. But yeah, he, he was a key part for what was going to be a fundamental factor in Juventus's success, you know, that kind of uh, defensive framework that he had and those individual players. And how significant is it there that we talk about the defensive players that they had the you know, was that a focus, do you think, for Juventus at that time? I mean, they, you know, they certainly weren't lacking attacking talent either, but the defence seems particularly, uh, you know, heavy on investment and quality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, what, in 2001-2002, they only lost three games in the league, didn't concede many goals at all. And similarly, the next season, they only lost, I think, four Serie A games and didn't concede many goals at all. The fence is incredible, um, and, and like I said, I think it helps having people that can play kind of interchangeable roles. Like you know, Turam could shift um, from full back to centre back, and so could uh, Montero and uh, Zambrotta could play you know both sides of uh, defence and full back, and also people that are kind of blend of attributes. You know, those technical, physical, and mental attributes, multiple leaders. Zero winners, people that are consistent in their availability. Um, but yeah, the, the defence that he was a part of was. Uh, as much as you know, it's uh, lovely to reflect on people like Del Piero and Trezeguet and um, all the other attacking talent that they had and Yedved, etc. I think the defence was the fundamental thing for Juventus then in terms of building that success. We've sort of touched upon, brushed over a few times the fact that he did play centre-half, right-back. Uh, and it was, you know, something he did interchangeably as well, I think, as Fed says. And it wasn't, he was a right-back up until this point, then he was a centre-half. How impressive is that? How difficult is that? And how much does that kind of speak for the ability and, and football intelligence, I suppose, to, you know, be able to so comfortably do two roles at once? Because we don't really see it these days. I was racking my brain earlier trying to think of someone and I thought, well, John Stones when he was a bit younger, maybe, but is now very much defined as a central central defender. Um, is, is, is that fair to say that, you know, it's quite impressive um, quirk? Perhaps. I think that's really impressive, and and like you, you're absolutely right to point out, Tom. I think that it's it's so impressive when you think about the fact that it's not just that at a certain age they decided, okay, right, you're you're good enough to be a centre back now. Let's shift you inside. This was throughout his career that he could play both at a really really high level, um, and I think that just shows what, what a good well rounded skill set he had, and that's very unique um, to to have that. Um, and I think. 
the other thing that makes it really interesting is it's not just that he could play fullback or centre back, it's that he could play it in different systems. So and, and that really speaks to his football intelligence for me because I think it's it's a really different job to play as a centre back in a back three than it is in a back four. Um, and at Parma, particularly, they flip between a back three and a back four at times. Um, I think, again, it, it really kind of demands a lot from you in terms of your um, positional awareness, knowing when to you know move forward in a line, but also when to cover for the win back. And, you know, you really got to be switched on. And Taram's skill set is incredible in this way. So we touched on earlier about how he knows when to stay on his feet and not commit. He's also a really underrated penalty box defender, in my view. Um, anticipates movement really well, times his blocks good. He's got a brilliant engine. So he, you know we obviously know that from seeing him you know, go up and down the line at fullback. But that also means that he's not outpaced on a short distance when he has to make a recovery run. He's got great stamina throughout games. He's got a lot of focus, stays switched on. Um, he's physically a good build for both of those roles. So I think you'd say he's, he's tall enough to play centre-back. I think probably he's quite lucky that he played for teams that didn't tend to kind of camp out um, in defence, as he might have been tested a bit more in the air versus like a very physically dominant forward to, if his team sat back. But also he wasn't so tall that it would hinder him at full-back. And, and he's, he's quite slim, but he's very strong. He's got kind of muscular legs. And he's got those ball-playing skills that we talked about before. He can bring the ball forward, but in, in different ways. So, you know, at fullback, he can bring the ball forward in a kind of, you know, rapid shuttle, get it up the line quickly. But, you know, from centre-back, he can bring it forward in a more kind of measured way and try and pick out a, a line-breaking pass. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he was the sort of guy that, like you touched on, he's, he's very unique and can seamlessly switch between those two uh, quite different positions, really, even though they're both defenders, you know. So Juventus at that time, of course, win Serie A 2002-2003, and in 2005 and 2006, if you believe their version of events, as well as reaching the, the Champions League final, god-awful Champions League final, you'll probably agree, against Milan at Old Trafford in 2003. I can remember watching it and I got, I tell you what, this is a ridiculous story, but I'll tell it regardless. Got chlorine in my eye that day and was so looking forward to watching the Champions League final. Couldn't watch it because I could barely keep my eye open. It was stinging like a mother. Turns out I didn't miss an awful lot in the uh, grand scheme of things. Um, <laughs> that's how I remember it anyway. Um, how good were Juventus at this point? And uh, Calciopoli, obviously, we know full well the significance of that and Juventus obviously dispute it to this day how many Scudetti they've won just talk us through all of that and that period and the kind of um, the fallout and the ramifications of that scandal because they were the far reaching and were felt for quite a long time afterwards yeah absolutely well just to kind of reiterate Juventus were obviously brilliant at a time with um, so many great players throughout the team and um, a, a real kind of well-built sense of how they wanted to play and, and um, that kind of, I guess, that kind of winning mentality that just builds with more time played as that kind of unit and winning together. But yeah, the, the Calcio Poly scandal that you referred to, so that kind of hits things um, in May of 2006 when you know, this match-fixing scandal is uncovered relating to the kind of two preceding seasons. Um, Juventus were implicated and are stripped of those two titles from 2004-05 and 2005-06 and relegated to Serie B. Um, in terms of its impact on the club, well, they, they won Serie B in 06-07, so a pretty swift return to uh, the top flight. 
but they didn't then win the top flight title till 2011, 2012. And, you know, as we all know, um, it's not been a, a long lasting legacy of the impact because they've won every other title in a row since. Um, but there's definitely significant impact to that particular time. And I think one of the interesting things about the impact of that time is um, the kind of number of players that leave the league. Um, so we, we spoke earlier about how attractive Serie A was around the time that Turan was joining. It was the league to be in. But that summer, 2006, after the scandal broke, um, obviously the World Cup had been that summer, 30 Serie A players who had participated mm. in the 2006 World Cup left the league that summer. And that included Turan, who of course been a World, World Cup runner-up in, in that tournament. And I think um, it's a really sad moment in football, and specifically Italian football, you know, which was a league that a lot of us, maybe you know, in, in Britain at that time, really loved because of you know the accessibility of it and Channel Four and you know the James Richardson kind of helmed um, Gazette football that we spoke to. So um, yeah, I think that's there's there's quite a lot of kind of ramifications for Italian football in terms of how people perceive the, the game there since then. Um, I also kind of like to reflect on and wonder about how the players feel about it. So I, I kind of like to know a bit more about how Turam feels about it. I kind of wonder, does it taint your own view of your career? Did he know what was going on? Uh, does he think that with reflection he maybe did a little bit and pretended he didn't? Did he not know? And does it make it uh, does it make him feel angry? Uh, does he let, you know think less of his achievements as a result of it? It's an interesting thing, thing to think about, but yeah, it's, it's a, a sad scandal and, and there was quite a bit of fallout for Juventus and Italian football. Well, exactly, and a lot of you know huge names left. Obviously, we know the ones that stayed loyal, the Del Pieros and Nedveds and Buffons as well, but Chiram is one of those who, and not to say he doesn't stay loyal, but ultimately decides to move on. And I think it's fair to... You can understand why at that point of his career. He must have been early 30s by now, am I right in thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So he moves to Barcelona in a 5 million euro deal, which by anyone's uh, standard, it's is probably a bit of a bargain at that point. What do you remember of his, his time at Barcelona? He doesn't play particularly regularly, but uh, still still plays his part, certainly, doesn't he? Yeah, um, well, a wonderful club to kind of be able to see out the kind of sunset of your career, I guess, particularly after it maybe been tainted a little bit with it. A scandal of that sort, and and obviously a, a phenomenal um, team. Um, I think you're right to say that you know it was maybe a little bit more difficult for Turam to be such a key figure, and perhaps that was a an interesting development for him in his career, having been you know ever present for seasons uh, for teams and and for the last kind of you know 15 years almost being somebody that was used to playing so many minutes per season. But I guess maybe you can have accepted at that point in your career, particularly when you've got people like Carlos Puyol who. Similarly, was somebody that had played a little bit of right back and did play centre back, but you know we kind of remember him more as the kind of physical kind of centre back that he was. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's that's my kind of main reflections of him. That Turam seemed like a good fit for Barcelona at that time, but he was always probably at that point going to operate as a as a kind of squad player. Well, I think we'll just leave it there for now, and we will be back after a very short break to discuss Turam's retirement and his legacy. And there's a lot to unpack there, so don't go anywhere. Welcome back to You, Me, and Today. I'm joined by Owen Brown, freelance football journalist and co-host of the Pure Fit Bar podcast. He's kindly joined us to talk about Lillian Turam, one of the greats of, of 90s football and of French football as well. Winding down his career now, Turam, as we talked about prior to the break, a couple of years at Barcelona, can't really break up the pairing of Carlos Puyol and, and Rafa Marquez. 
Um, and he looked set to return to his homeland and join Paris Saint-Germain on a one-year deal, but a, a medical showed up a heart defect, which later it turned out to be was the same that killed his brother. Uh, and he makes the decision, well, the only logical decision, I suppose, to retire at 36. How, looking back on his career then, do we do we sum it up as, as a whole? What are the kind of the abiding memories and the the key kind of, the key achievements as, as, as we look back on it all? Sure. Um, I would say that Turam's basically a, a titan of the game. Um, so this is somebody that's the most capped ever French player. He's a serial winner who played for multiple great teams and was also, you know, always consistently great. Um, he's the sort of person that I imagine is one of the first names on a manager's team sheet, loved by his teammates. Basically an exemplar of maybe, you know, the best career that's possible for a player, really. And, you know, like you've touched on and we've spoken about, he's also in some ways, you know, a bit of a pioneer um, in terms of, you know, positions and, and what he was able to kind of show as possible for a player on a football field. So, yeah, that, that's how I see him as an iconic figure in football, really. When we were, uh, we were talking earlier about his kind of, uh, his family and what have you, just touching upon it there, his, his brother died from a heart defect. His son now is plays obviously professionally as we know in uh, in the Bundesliga. How talks to us about the kind of significance of his family? And I think he's got. I think I'm right in saying he's got a cousin potentially who plays professional football as well. It's quite there's quite a lot there, isn't there? That's uh, worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. Two sons, in fact, that play professional football. So as well as Marcus, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, he's got Kefren who's at Nice, I believe. Um, so I, that, that's really interesting to me. I kind of love the subject of looking at, um, you know, uh, children of parents who are sports people. And, you know, that's something that's quite prevalent in NBA, for instance, but I think it's becoming more and more prevalent in uh, football um, with, you know, Justin Cliver and, you know, so on, other, other people from this kind of era that um, are, are now um, seeing their own children in the game. And yeah, that, that's interesting. I think the the thing you touched on with uh, Taram's brother's death and, and the heart defect is it's interesting, and, and that must have been a a very difficult time for Taram. But he must be exceptionally pleased to see his kids um, going on to such heights, and, and it's pretty exciting that um, you know Marcus Taram is performing so brilliantly from Brunchen Glad, but of course we'll be able to see actual live football for the first time in a long time, not too long from now, yes. um, with the return of the Bundesliga. Um, but yeah, that, I, I think that's, again, we kind of touched on earlier the the fact that for, you know, Turam has come such a long distance in his football kind of career from, you know, starting in Guadeloupe and then only following his mother to Paris as a young child. And for him to, you know, be able to reflect on the fact that this has then resulted in his children also having an opportunity in the game and doing so well, that must be an incredible feeling for him. We talk about uh, his sons there. How much of an advantage do you think it is being the the, the offspring of a former professional in, in kind of growing up and someone who obviously achieved so much as, as Turam did? I think it must help. Um, so there's a lot of kind of things to dig into around it, but you know the the genetic side of it, you know, the physical attributes that you're likely to get from your parents that are, uh, you know, if not one, maybe even both sports people, that's there. There's also maybe the resource advantages of having somebody that's been a successful footballer. You're probably going to you know grow up in an environment where you have access to um, you know nice training stuff, um, either. You know, paid for by the parents, or maybe even you've got access into clubs uh, due to those you know preformed relationships. 
Um, and you'll also probably be put into those environments from a young age. Um, so whether you actually think you want your kid to be a footballer, whether the kid wants to be a footballer, you'll probably be around clubs and maybe kind of you know playing things. So um, that both will help your development, but also help you get noticed. Um, so it's got to be advantageous uh, in relative terms to um, be the child of a professional sports person in terms of becoming one yourself. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, obviously, you know, Marcus Thuram and Kevin Thuram are both supremely talented themselves and deserve a lot of credit for the work that gets them uh, to where they are and, and, and beyond. But yeah, they've got an advantage in my view. What's then on Thuram Senior? What was his kind of outstanding moment? What was your, your favourite memory from his career and watching him play throughout the 90s and early noughties? Well, um, I think the run to the 1998-99 UEFA Cup for Parma is incredible. Mm. So I think the key thing to keep in mind around this is that he's playing every game, probably every minute, basically, for Parma. Um, and they had some very, very good you know, performances in this um, tournament. So they beat Rangers, um, who tested them really hard. And obviously, that was an interesting game for me, being from Glasgow. I remember watching it at the time. And... Uh, Rangers tested them very, very, you know, difficult game for Parma over in Parma, and Turan was brilliant in it. They done, they they went on and kind of thumped Bordeaux six 0 um, in Parma. It was very impressive. Beat Atletico Madrid in the semis, beat Marseille in the final. But I think that um, overall, it's kind of the consistency that sticks with me for somebody like Turan, the, the kind of reliability and the kind of string of. A, a, you know, beyond seven out of ten performances, it's not a kind of Mr. Reliable in that. I guess for a, a singular moment, though, it would be the France 1998 World Cup final. Not necessarily for his performance in the final, but for the settings that I watched in. So I watched the Teen Park uh, Festival, uh, music festival in, in Scotland, on a big screen with a huge crowd. Um, and probably most people, um, even though uh, Brazil beat us, Scotland, I mean, in the group stage, Probably most people are supporting Brazil, you know, just because, you know, it's Brazil, Sapa football and so on. Um, and that was a pretty good festival. So it was Beastie Boys, Prodigy, Pulp, who were one of my favourite bands at the time. But a highlight was definitely getting to watch that French victory, as you mentioned, in France. And of course, you know, featuring uh, Lillian Turan at that point, probably kind of announcing himself on the world stage as a, as a world-class talent. Finally then, on his on his playing career directly, where in the kind of pantheon of great defenders, European defenders of the 90s and early 2000s do you think Turam sits I know he's a big favourite of yours but I'm sure you can be objective enough to sort of work out where he sits uh, very high up I would say I mean I think it's always difficult to compare individual players and um, I would say maybe that in some people's views his positional versatility might even count against him um, because you know then you're like well he was a very good fullback he was a very good centre back but maybe he wasn't like the best at either of those but for me, yeah, I see him as one of the best fullbacks and best centre-backs of that era. So if I had to pick an 11 from that era, he'd maybe sneak in twice. Once at fullback, once at centre-back. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, being realistic, there are, of course, you know, there's loads and loads of players from that era that I love. Incredible defenders that, yeah, even some that I would put ahead of them probably. But, um, yeah, I, I, would, I would say he's up there, one of the very, very best from that era. In terms of his legacy, well, I just wanted to cover a couple of uh, a few things away from directly from football. I suppose we talked about 
you know, being very uh, politically active, I think, and, you know, having a quite a clearly quite a strong moral compass. And in, in 2002, he had the opportunity, sorry, 2001, I should say, he had the opportunity to join Lazio, a, a deal worth 50 billion lira at the time had been agreed. This was at the time, of course, he was leaving Parma and joining Juventus. And there were four meet. there was a meeting, I should say, with four prominent members of Lazio's Irutucibli uh, ultras group ostensibly to, to explain their point of view given the kind of reputation of Lazio supporters at the time as being violent and racist and the the meeting seems to have gone quite well you can you can read around this subject as I did in a bit more detail today and I would recommend the piece on the Gentleman Ultra website uh, for a bit more detail than I'm going to give but Owen my question to you is he turned down the opportunity to join Lazio in favour of joining Juventus and on a purely football level you could maybe see why, but Lazio, you know, strong team at the time. It, the significance being, you know, turning down an opportunity based on the behaviour of supporters and being potentially made to feel unwelcome and racially abused at the worst, the, the worst end of that scale. How much does that speak for Taram's character and his kind of, as I said, moral, you know, fortitude, moral fibre, whatever you want to call it? I think this is a really good example of why, you know, he maybe transcends for me even just his ability on the pitch. Um, so, you know, I really respect the fact that he decided to um, consider something more than just the football mm-hmm. inside of things and, you know, reject the move. But I even more respect him for the fact that he spoke up about it while he was still a player. I think that's exactly. a very powerful thing to be able to do. Um, I'm not too sure it's had a great impact on Lazio fans. Um, <laughs> this season, <laughs> Lazio fans were marching through Glasgow uh, before their match with Celtic, still doing you know fascist salutes. But I'm sure it had an impact on you know some people there. And I think in general terms, these things can help change fan perspectives, and they can certainly inspire fellow players. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to give an example of you know how somebody like that um, you know would would want to be treated, and you know what he feels he can do in response so yeah I think that's an incredibly brave and powerful thing and, and really deserves a lot of respect yeah as you say spoke up about it only a year later in an interview with the BBC saying it's incredible you go to Lazio and you hear all these fans making all these noises how could I go and play for Lazio knowing what they're like it would be impossible when I think in 2002 you know racism has always been wrong but we're more and more aware of it these days I suppose and players certainly make more of a stance uh, not that they should have to, of course. It shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't fall to them, and it shouldn't be a thing. But to speak up in the way he did and, and so vociferously says a, says a hell of a lot about him uh, as a person. Since retirement, then he's worked as a UEFA ambassador and has continued to be lauded for his work fighting racist abuse. And then on, on a political, um, in a political sense as well, he's been very active. Previously spoken against uh, Nicolas Sarkozy before he became French Prime Minister and engaged in campaigns favouring the the Catalan language during his time in Barcelona. In 2013, he took part in a march through Paris in support of plans to legalise same-sex marriage in the country. What else do we know about uh, Taram, and and how does this help round the picture of him as a person as as well as a player? Well, I think he's clearly a very smart and kind of switched-on, empathetic person, Um, somebody who's not afraid to kind of stand up for himself, but is also active fighting for people who are marginalised or face intolerance. 
Um, for me, that massively adds up uh, to how I feel about him as a as a player, as a person. Um, makes up for any you know kind of regret around the Calcio Poly and Parmalat scandals for me. Um, and yeah, it, it absolutely adds to him. You know, he's been given an honorary degree from Stirling University uh, just last year um, as kind of you know um, a recognition of all he's done both as a footballer but beyond that. And he just really strikes me as um, a really interesting, well-rounded individual. I kind of suspect that Turan would have been a success of whatever he did. And we're kind of just lucky that he chose football. It's been incredibly enjoyable for us to get to watch him and reflect on his career. But he, he just seems to me like a, a great example of a human being. Well, Owen, that's a brilliant way to sum it up. And I couldn't think of a better more fitting tribute to close this episode of You, Me. And thank you ever so much for joining us to discuss Lillian Turam. And I hope you've enjoyed reminiscing about the great man's career as much as I have today. You can subscribe to You, Me and via Acast, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere else you get your podcast, Spotify as well. So make sure you do that and tell your friends about the show as well. We'll be back next week to discuss another legend of the 90s but in the meantime if there's someone you particularly like to hear us go in depth on make sure you get in touch with football whispers via instagram twitter or facebook in the meantime stay safe and we look forward to speaking again next week (laughs) 